0: This is part two of a three-part message. I already, I've already done part one a couple weeks ago. This is part two. Uh, there will actually be a part three next week. Um, and by God's providence, really, George's message would be probably part four of this message, um, the, how the Lord worked it. If you have an outline, if you have one of these bulletins, you'll see an outline. The title of this message is Authentic Apostolic Ministry, Authentic Pastoral Ministry." And thus far, last time I was with you, I preached, if you look on the outline, the signs of a true apostle. We looked at that, and that's kind of different. Pastors can't be apostles, um, but apostles could be pastors and pastoral. We looked at some unique things about the apostle Paul that, remember, as he's closing out, he's trying to give the final signs of his the authenticity of his apostolic ministry. And that was big because the Corinthians needed to base their salvation on what Paul had told them, which was the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, not what the false apostles had told them, which was you're saved by, by grace plus also the works that you do. So it was important that Paul uh, continue to establish his apostolic authority directly from Jesus uh, about what the true gospel was for the glory of God and their good. But we find some things that a, a, a shepherd does, a pastor does, pastoral ministry. We find The kind of ministry that God's people do to each other. That God's people should expect from their pastors. So we see that Paul gave the two signs of an apostle. But point number two was Paul spent himself for their souls. And you really, God calls us to pastorally spend ourselves for the souls of our people. Calls pastors to do this. We find that there was integrity of the servants that Paul had sent to the Corinthian church. That if you want to see the... that. Authentic pastoral ministry, you can see those have integrity come from their ministries. And you can see that we talked point number four, that Paul, everything Paul did was serving them for their good. It was about the glory of God and their good, not Paul's glory. And authentic pastoral ministry is not um, pastors are not concerned about their own glory, but the glory of God. Now, one of the things that when people look for churches, they often say to themselves, and this is how it usually works... When people look for a church, what they do is they visit a church on a Sunday morning and they kind of just see what the feel feels like. This is general. What does it feel like? And then the second question they ask is, what was the worship music like? And to be honest with you, that's about the two standards that people use when they visit a church. A third might be, how are the children's ministries? But that's typically the kind of top three. Now, I'm not saying all that is bad, um, I, I would, but I would kind of question one and two to kind of and three, and kind of go, you, there, there's probably a lot more that you should evaluate than those. Those should be some of there probably in your consideration maybe. But, but there's really some really big things that we see in Scripture. And one of the things we must always ask ourselves, with whatever church, God, because you, we live in Collierville, a good majority of people move into Collierville for a certain time period. Then God's going to transition you out of here. We, we know that. We see that quite a bit. Very few of us, this is going to be the long-term home. So there's going to be there's going to be what we call church looking church shopping. The um the the selections are becoming fewer and fewer as time goes on. They're not like it used to be, but still there will be some looking. And one of the things that we really got to look for and what I would encourage you to look for is do I see pastoral ministry that will spin themselves for the good of my soul? Do I see integrity coming from their ministry? Do I see that it's not about their, it's not about that the, that pastoral ministry it's not about their good about the glory of god and the good of others and today here's one that i think point number five and this is where we're just going to be point number five lord willing we'll do six seven and eight next week you can see point nine that's actually what george had done last week but point number five and we're just going to be on number five on that outline today paul was serious about their sanctification and pastoral ministry that is good pastoral ministry. And pastoral ministry of shepherding of God's people towards each other. Is one where they're serious about sanctification. They're serious about it. In our text today that we see this part two. Paul's serious about their sanctification. Pick a church that you can find out. Are the people in that church serious about your sanctification? Not A lot of times people look for people in church that have the same age grouping as them or the same family dynamic as them. That's where a lot of people pick their church based off of, is everybody kind of like me? (laughs) I do not want to pick a church where a bunch of people are like me. That would be terrible, right? Pick a church and look for a church and look for a ministry where they care about your sanctification. The people of the church, the pastor of the church, they care. They care about sanctification. When I say sanctification, here's what I mean. Sanctification means set apart from sin unto God. It's this idea of the more I, the longer I'm in the Lord, I should be growing where I develop my sainthood. I develop more into the image of Christ. I am sinning less, repenting more, growing more in his image. It's a progression of growing into sainthood, sanctification. The kind of place that God wants you and the kind of people God wants Collierville Bible Church to be is the people that believe in the sanctifying effect of what the Word of God says. For instance, us as a body, we should care about the people of our church, whether they're in sin or not and what they're doing with sin. We should. And that should be a, a, I would say, like number one, number two, like that should be top of your list is I'm looking for a church. Can I find a church that takes sin serious? that will preach the gospel to me, will hold me accountable, will ask me to do the same. And by the way, just saying, if, if there's a church that ever tries to practice accountability with you, and you think, I'm going to get away from that body, you might not be doing the right thing in the moment. I'm just telling you that may be actually exactly what you need. Now, in our text today, Paul is serious about their sanctification. Good pastoral ministry. I can tell you honestly, I think this is probably one of the hardest parts for me in pastoral ministry. Um, I, I want to be serious about people's sanctification, but also I, I don't like it. I don't like what that entails sometimes because sometimes you start to look like the enemy when you get serious about people's sanctification. It really happens. Sometimes a, a, a bullseye gets put on your back. But in the end, all of us as God's people, we have to, we're accountable to God. We're accountable to fear God, not fear man. So God calls us to be a people, to practice this pastoral ministry of we are serious about sanctification. Paul serious. Would you do this? Would you stand in reverence to the reading of God's word? And we're going to look at verse 20 and 21. This whole kind of part 2 and 3, this all goes from uh, chapter 12, verse 11, to chapter 13, verse 9. But today we're looking at 20 and 21. And Paul says this. I am afraid... That perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. It may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past. And not repented of the impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality which, which they have practiced. Can I just ask God to have his hand on this? Your word is holy. It's sacred. You've given it to us. You've preserved it. We need your help this morning. We need your help to capture what did the original author mean for the original recipients to understand. How can we understand that and apply this text today? How can we be a people, as God's people, that we practice this seriousness about the sanctification in the body, but even me as a, as a pastor, as our elders, are we serious about sanctification? Are we serious about this? Thank you for what we read here. We know you care about this. We know you care enough that you have sent your Son. And only has your sacrifice on the cross forgiven us, but has also empowered us to say no to sin and yes to you. May we not forget that. This is a serious matter. God, would you help us to capture this? Holy Spirit, you are the most important person in this room right now. Would you help us? We need your help. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. (coughs) By the way, if you hear me cough a little bit, um, that may happen when I start talking. Uh, Whatever I had three weeks ago, I still have a little slight cough here and there. seems like this is happening with everybody. If you look in verse 20 once again, Paul says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish. and may be found by you to be not what you wish. Paul was going to make a third visit to this Corinthian church. and If you remember, the second visit he made escalated and got really bad. So bad. That Paul took off, went back to Ephesus, and wrote a very strong second letter that we don't have a copy of today, but this letter was so strong and so heavy, it resulted in the repentance of many in the Corinthian church. Not all, but many. Not all, because you see here, he's saying, some of you may not have repented. And when I make this third visit, if you've not repented, you're going to see a different Paul than what you saw my second visit. No, make mistake, you're going to see a Paul that's weak, but you're going to see a Paul that's maybe weak in himself, but strong in Christ. We're going to deal with this differently. It's not going to be the same way. So Paul knows this, and he basically is throwing out the warning. I'm coming, I'm coming. And I I don't, when I show up, I'm not hoping to find things that I don't wish to find, just like you are hoping not to find me in a way that's different when I came to you last time. So Paul's going to make this third visit. And if these sins aren't dealt with, Paul is an apostle of Christ. and his pastoral ministry, there will be redemptive church discipline that needs to happen. He will not be afraid of it. We'll look greater length at that next week. But he's not afraid of it. He'll do it. I want you to notice in verse 20, what kind of pastoral care there is. Where before he even brings the confrontation, and he realizes there may be confrontation when he gets there, he identifies to them how difficult this is going to be. He says, I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may not find you to not be what I wish. It may be found by you not to be what you wish. What great pastoral even sensitivity that he is serious about their sanctification, but he's not a jerk for Jesus. He actually is saying, I need to prepare you, prepare yourself well. We're going to have a conversation. This is going to be a difficult conversation. Just as a great application for us, when we talk to each other about serious things, When we're serious about each other's sanctification. And we have hard things to talk to each other about. Sin patterns and habits. I find many times it's good to let people know ahead of time. Like, hey, brother, I want to have a conversation with you. But I just want to prepare you. This may be a hard conversation. It may be an awkward conversation. It's going to be hard for both of us. As much as it's going to be hard for you, it's going to be hard for me. Sometimes you prepare people ahead of time. What a great principle. He's preparing them for a very difficult conversation. Even the second thing is the fact that he's actually telling them means there's some accountability. If Paul shows up and he sees what we're about to see in verse 20 and 21, but does nothing about it, that's going to kind of be an awkward exchange. So he already provides the accountability even for himself. He's acknowledging that this is difficult. He's actually even bearing his pastoral soul to say, I'm, I'm not just some hard, outer exterior person. Uh, I have desires of what I'm hoping to find when I get there, just like you're hoping when I come. It's going to be a great situation. But but let this be known: I am serious about your sin. I'm serious about the sanctifying effect of what God has called us to, and we will deal with this. But I want you to know: I wish I, I I'm wishing for something different, and you're wishing for the same thing. What great pastoral insight! What great pastoral care! Even when we talk to our children, especially the older our kids get, the younger our kids get, it's not I mean wait, kids don't get younger, do they, right? The younger they are, you know that's, Does anybody have the Benjamin Buttons disease or anything like that? Okay, We don't know that. We don't know that. So the younger your kids are, there's not a lot of prep for that, right? When they're young, you pretty much have to carry out you carry out immediate discipline. There's, there's not a lot of this, but the older they get, part of actually going after their heart. Right. You've got a teenager, you're going after their heart is sometimes before you have that difficult conversation, there may be, hey, I got something difficult to talk to you about. And it's going to be a hard one. We're going to talk about this. I want to give you a chance to go before the Lord, get in your scriptures and prepare yourself for this conversation that does not That's not the way it works in the younger years In the younger years. You're appealing to the authority and discipline as you get into the older years, you're appealing to authority. But first, you're appealing to the heart. That's why you discipline a kid different at different phases and ages and maturity in their life. You find here that Paul is dealing with them in a certain way. Just look at it. It's, an, it's incredible. His pastoral touch here. And his pastoral touch does not mean he will not deal with sin. Now, the first sin he deals with, you'd think, would be what's in verse 21. Remember, verse, Look at verse 21. The sins he's going to deal with, if they've not been dealt with... In verse 21 are impurity, sexual immorality, sexual morality, and sensuality. Those are kind of the big red flag sins, sexual sins. Now, if you remember, we've preached through 1 um, Corinthians before, uh, several years ago. Of course you remember it, right? Several years ago. That was hyperbole, right? Okay, you, you, probably, you probably don't. But if you remember... He had dealt with, he had told them that there was sexual sin and had counseled them on how to deal with it. They had they had some, but not completely all had repented. So there's still some issues. But notice the first thing he doesn't deal with is the sexual sin. He in verse 20 deals with the sin of disharmony and disunity. What we would call these almost sometimes respectable sins, sins that we just kind of put up with, sins that break down the unity of a church and a home and a relationship. Sins in verse 20. You'd think he'd go after them f- verse 21 first. But he actually goes after verse 20. These disharmony sins. What are these disharmony sins? By the way, in verse 20, these are sins often in pastoral ministry. Not only from a pastor to his people, but a people to each other as they practice shepherdly aspects. A lot of times these are things that we just let go of. These are things we don't address. Even in our own homes as we are called as husbands, as fathers, we're called to shepherd our home. These are areas, many times, that we don't address ourselves. So look what he says. He gives us some of the sins that he is hoping they'll deal with. And if they haven't, he'll deal with it. These are sins of disunity, disharmony. Look at it, verse 20. He lists several of them. He says, perhaps there will be strife. Do you see that first word, strife? That word strife, when you, when you look at it in the Greek language, it has the idea of... Eager for combat, someone ready to fight and looking for a fight. So we see that word strife right there. That's that's the idea. Now if you have a New Living Translation or ESV, they use the English word quarreling to denote that idea. Which I think that's a good trans that's a good word. My LSB uses the word strife. The King James Version. Anybody have King James? The King James uses the word debates. Which I think is actually a really appropriate word to describe this Greek word here, debates. Because when you think about a debate, you're actually quarreling with each other. Well, presidential debates. But if it's like, you know, the kind that happened in high school with rules and all that kind of stuff, those aren't meant to be that kind of animosity. But most presidential debates are that there's this quarreling, this combativeness, this ready-to-fight. We're going to have presidential debates this year. I suppose we will, correct? And so... One of the things we're going to see in these presidential debates is they're going to walk onto the stage and and A, they're not going to do this. They're not going to go, how polite can we be to each other? They're going to come out with a posture of, we're coming out to fight. What is that? That's the word, that's the word that he's trying to get across, the Greek word. It's actually iris, but that really doesn't mean anything to you. What it means is eager for combat, ready to fight, looking for it. He says, When I come, this kind of discord. Is in the church. No doubt it would be in the families. This kind of strife. Always ready to go at it. Always ready to say something. Always ready to give people a piece of your mind. Always re- ready to run your mouth. Always willing and wanting, always wanting to have the last word. Does any of this sound familiar? It's, it's, think, it's this kind of thing that we can even do it as parents. As parents. We can provoke our children to anger. We should bring correction to our children. But we shouldn't use every opportunity and every conversation to point back to something they've done wrong. Now that doesn't mean we don't bring correction. That just means we don't use every opportunity as another, is another opportunity to just bring admonishment. This is this spirit of being in strife, always eager for combat, always wanting to fight, always looking for it, always looking for some kind of debate, some kind of argument. This is also from a, from a child. God does not, it, God is not pleased when you, debate your chi- when you debate your parents. God is not pleased with it. What does God want? God wants you to honor and obey your parents. Unless your parents are asking you to sin, God wants honor and obedience. But what do we have sometimes? This sin. It's strife. It's eager for combat. You want to debate. You want to get into it. You want to go the back and forth. Paul says, this kind of sin, if I find it, you're not gonna. Lie. You're gonna wish it was a different Paul coming to you. It's not the same Paul that you saw last time. God's gonna have me practice things a different way. This sin has to be dealt with. What? An, what an interesting thing. They're not okay with it. Hey, husbands, we can't be okay with this kind of stuff in our homes. We just simply can't. Paul says this has to be dealt with. Even in the church, this has to be dealt with. We should not. Our homes and our churches and our businesses. Should not be this strife, quarreling, debating kind of atmosphere where everything is about provoking and everybody's just walking and looking for a fight. So that's the first one. Now, after that, he says the word jealousy. Jealousy. Now, if you have a King James that uses the word envy, I think that's a really good word to use. Almost every other translation is going to use the word jealousy. Now, a lot of people would look at this and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought God was allowed to be jealous. Aren't we? Well, God is actually allowed to be jealous because he's God and he's jealous for the right things. Just like a husband should be jealous over the affections of his wife only coming towards him or a wife being jealous that the affections of her husband only come towards him. That's why, that's why neither husband and wife can ever be okay with any sort of pornography or anything of that nature because affection uh, goes directly to each other. There's a jealousy for that. Or, or flirtation. This is why a wife should be jealous if another woman is flirting with her husband or a husband is flirting with another woman, we're to be jealous for each other. But there's a sinful jealousy that this is talking about. It's a jealousy of which you don't have any right to. It's a jealousy of which you're envious of what others have or you're envious of being treated in ways that others are being treated in the moment. I'll give you an example. Your child, let's say, let's say you have five children and one of your children do something that's really good, right? You're just like, man. And you start praising them, right? For something they've done. But yet, two of the other five are like, wait a minute. I did that same thing. And I heard no praise from you. Does this sound familiar? And in that moment, they're, they're kind of thinking like, wait a minute. What? I did that? Why, why didn't you say anything to me? What's happening in that moment? That's called jealousy. That's called envy. It's In that moment, you're wanting what others have are you're wanting to be treated in a way that others are being treated in the moment. You're wanting it for yourself. That doesn't mean parents shouldn't recognize things. It just means that in that moment, you're more concerned about your own glory than even what God has done in the praise of a sibling. It can happen at work. It happens at work all the time, doesn't it? Someone else barely gets things done. And you may have been putting more in hours, more work. You have... Maybe work double what they've worked, but they've just scratched the surface and got praised because the, the expectations are so low on them, right? And then you kind of think like, "How dare they? I cannot believe they're not recognizing what I'm doing." That's jealousy. We don't know anything about this. I get this. I understand jealousy. So he says, "Hey, there are jealousies within your 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 life. It's throughout the church. It's creating disunity. Everybody is." Fighting to get recognized, to get praise and acclaim. You're wanting what others have. You're envious of what others have. It is causing disunity and disharmony. So we have strife, we have jealousy. Already these two, doesn't it already seem like these are sins that are kind of respectable? That in our own lives we just kind of pass over and think it's okay? Like, like when things happen at work like this and, and you genuinely aren't recognized... We think it's okay that we get on the phone and start complaining to our friends and our family and our spouse when is there not any space of repentance for the Lord where we can say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Is there not any space to say, you know what, the God of heaven sees what I do. And I wasn't doing this for man's praise anyways. I was actually doing it for his glory. So Paul says, we got to deal with this. It's interesting. It's interesting. This is good pastoral ministry. This is good ministry to each other. Are we this serious about the sanctification of each other? Look what he says next after that: outbursts of anger, outbursts of anger. Now the the Greek word here used is thymos, and there is another Greek word used to denote anger as well, orgon, and these. These two words are used throughout, but this word thymos really, when it talks about anger, there's there's, kind of a, there's a Greek word for anger that kind of is that icy cold kind of anger where you might be angry at somebody, but you kind of just ignore them. You ever done that where someone has said, what's wrong with you? And you're like, nothing. <laughs> there's a whole lot wrong. You just, you're just you icing them out. Then there's this kind of anger thymos here where it's this rage. You're exploding. You, you just can't take enough. That's why in our text, in our text it says, Outbursts of anger! He says, There's what's happening. You are passionate and intense about your anger. This is what outbursts of anger. Now, if you have other versions, um, like the ESV NLT, it just says the word anger, which I think is not really denoting the passion that's behind this Greek word. This word has a passionate anger. It's that kind of blowing your top kind of anger, thymos. The King James Version, which I actually think, I should have brought my King James Bible in here today because I think the King James does a, a really good job with the words that it's using for its translation. It uses the word wrath, right? This wrath that gives you this explosive, passionate anger. Other other versions like the message, which um is 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 not a good version for discovering what the word of God says, but it is a translation, but it's it's more of a Quick reading kind of Bible. But he says something interesting in the message. It says flaring tempers. I thought it was strong. Your NASB says angry tempers. The NIV says fits of rage. which That's pretty good. The New King James Version says outbursts of wrath. Outbursts of wrath. What we see is this. Discord, disunity. From a church to a home to society to work to all of life. Right? Paul says, we got to deal with strife, we got to deal with jealousy, and we got to deal with outbursts of anger. Let me say a phrase to you. Outbursts of anger are not okay, of sinful anger. Outbursts of sinful anger are not okay. I'm going to say it again. Outbursts of sinful anger are not okay. Parents, it's actually not right for us to yell at our children to try to force them into obedience, right? We discipline them But we don't just give full vent and mock and ridicule. Do we understand? Fits of rage. This is this passionate temper flaring. It's also not okay. It's not okay. I'm telling you, it's not okay that a husband and wife would just give full vent to say whatever they want to in the moment and think, well, it's safe because where are you going to go? And think that God is dismissing the most vile and and Passionate, wrathful language to each other, how dare us, how dare us? Paul says, i'm going to deal with this when I come. This isn't an okay thing. outbursts of anger. it causes disunity. This is something that was happening in the church, no doubt it was happening everywhere else. What a great pastor pastoral ministry Paul is doing. he's getting right at him, he's getting to the things that we often dismissed, like outbursts of anger. What's your average week like? What's it look like? How many times in a week is an outburst of anger happen? How many times is an outburst of anger happen just on the telephone? You ever notice how how much of a mean cuss we can be on the telephone, and then and then someone else, you know, at, I'm sorry, how mean of a cuss we could be acting towards people? Then someone calls us on the telephone, and what do we do? Right, you know, hello, right? We change ourselves instantly. Outbursts of anger. Men, you ought not be yelling at your wife in this kind of way. And if that's what you've done, it's really time to repent before God and repent to her. But wives, especially even, listen, the God has called you to respect and submit to your husband. It is a disrespectful thing to give full vent to your wrath and to yell at your husband and demean him. And there may be a thing of saying like, well, he deserves it. No, he doesn't. And God doesn't doesn't want you sinning against him. That doesn't mean you don't speak truthful words to your husband. That doesn't mean you don't speak solid words to your husband. It means that you speak the truth in love. There is a difference. Paul here is dealing with their sin. Paul here is speaking in control. So he's not glossing over their sin. But he's not practicing the very sin he's telling them not to do. Paul's not yelling at them here. Next up. He's serious about their sanctification. Next up after that, he says the word selfish ambition. Now this word selfish ambition, when you kind of look at it in the original languages, um, this this idea of selfish ambition, most of your translations are going to say selfish ambition, although like if you have an ESV, it says hostility. The NASB says disputes. The King James says strife. I think the New Living Translation, I think they picked a good word that's easy for, I think, our own... English understanding of language. It just says flat out the word selfishness. But when you really look at this word and start to understand its, its understanding in the original languages, it has this idea of serving only for hire or wage. Serving only hire for wage. Meaning, I work this job only because of what I get from it. Which, yes, I'm not saying anything bad about that intrinsically. You work a job and hope they pay you. If they don't pay you, you probably should go find another job. But the idea of this Greek word that's used for this here is this idea of I work this job only for what I can get from it, which is pay. And the application would be I treat this person this way only for what I can get from them. And when I don't get what I want from them, I'm done. It's called selfishness. It means I'm in this relationship only to get what what I want. And if I don't get what I want then I am going to leave this relationship, or I'm going to do something to sabotage this relationship. It's called selfish ambition. I think the word selfishness makes it the most easiest way to understand. But when you see versions like the ESV and NASB, they use the word disputes. That's a really good word to denote what's happening, because a lot of times when people aren't getting what they want, they'll, in their selfishness, they'll start disputes with somebody and start arguments because they're fighting for what they want, And in the end, it breaks down the relationship because really, they're just fighting for what they want out of pure selfishness. Now, even the thing you want may be a good thing. It may be something that God wants. But God doesn't want you to act sinful to get what God wants you to have. I've seen this a lot. I've seen this a lot. I've seen husbands practice this kind of selfish ambition towards their wife many ways. I've seen women do the same thing. Next after that, he says the word slander the word slander the word slander here is means evil speech you're speaking evil but it's interesting the king james version which once again i think does a really good job with it it uses the word backbiting backbiting now if i turn my back to you right can i defend myself from anything you say like i'm sorry not say but let's say you're going to attack me but i've got my back turned to you am i going to be able to defend myself if my back's turned to you and you're going to attack me That's not a trick answer, right? Yeah, no, I can't. Now, can I defend myself this way? Sure, if you're going to attack me. But I can't defend myself if my back is turned. I don't know what you're about to do. When you look at this word slander that's used right here, it means evil speech. But also, when you look at some of the definitions, it has this idea of a back turned. That's why I think it's really good that the King James uses the word "backbitings." It's this idea of... I, so that I'm going to talk bad about you in such a way because I know you can't defend yourself. I think one of the ways we see this most easily is like with social media, right? That's the thing about social media. You can get on social media and you can completely talk someone down, and there's really nothing they can do about it because their back is turned. They can't really defend themselves once an idea has been out there. Or sometimes this happens where you're in some, you, you, we start to. Talk about leadership. We, maybe there's a leader of some sort we don't like, and then all of a sudden what we want to do is we're going to get around some people and start talking bad about that person, but we'll talk bad in such a way that their back is turned. There's no way they can actually defend themselves. I've seen this happen in couples that are planning on divorcing each other. Man, I have seen this happen. In my 20, over 26 years of ministry, here's what I've learned. When people want to sin, When people want to do wrong, they're going to find a way to justify their action. And one of the ways they're going to do it is through backbiting. What they're going to do is they're going to try to find enough people that will agree with what they're going to do. And if they can get enough people to agree with what they're doing, they can do this big backbiting against the person they just want to get away from, right? Are are you understanding what I'm saying? This backbiting. I'm going to intentionally come at you, but I'm going to do it behind your back in such a way that you can't even defend yourself. By the way, I've seen many people have their reputations ruined. I've seen many guys in ministry have their reputation ruined, not by anything they've done because someone decided to be a social justice warrior with their with their social media account and completely slander them, and there's nothing that that guy will do. And actually, I'm going to tell you this. Most people who have a moral compass before the Lord, they're not going to get on social media and trade 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 swings back and forth on social media, right? So I just want you to know this. If someone ever accuses a leader and that leader doesn't say a lot back to them, that's actually probably more of an indictment on those people who were trying to practice the backbiting. Does that make sense? But this is what they were doing. Now obviously they didn't have social media, right? Unless, you know, you know, unless they were like you know flying, you know, telescopes or something, you know, or, you know, jet planes or something back then. They didn't have internet or anything of that nature. Um, You know, I don't think Tesla went that far. So he says, slanders. Slanders. Next up, he he says this word gossip. Now, most people would go, wait a minute, what's the difference between slander and gossip? Because the gossip is behind someone's back. Well, here's the difference. Backbiting is this idea of, I'm going to come at this person... In a way they can't defend themselves. But I'm coming at them with my mouth. And I'm going to gather a group of people. And, and it's harsh. And it's aggressive. But the word gossip here has something to do more with whispering. It's more silent. It's more, hey, did you hear? Right? Gossip is more this idea of whispering behind someone's back. But it's more about I'm going to feed information. I may not be against it, someone that I'm gossiping about. I just want to share The dish. I just want to share the news. I just want to have something to talk about. Sometimes people get confused even what gossip is. Here's what gossip is. Let me just help you. It's your whispering about someone else's life. And and the person you're whispering it to has nothing to do with that situation. So when we're gossiping, it's when we're going around talking about people's business to people that have nothing to do with that situation. And that if that person was there, they'd be pretty upset you were sharing that. That doesn't mean that we can't share praises. This doesn't mean that it's not gossip when you're sharing praises, but it's gossip when if the person you're talking about was there, would you actually be whispering it to that person? That's how you can kind of know, is this gossip or bad? Because sometimes there's great things we want to share. Like if God gives you a child, right? And and, and you're with, with child and you have sharing it. I mean, that's like a good thing. Or your baby's just been born and here's how... Here's how much they weigh, and here's their name. Not tip, these are, it's not gossip. These are things that we want to share, and that if those people were there, you wouldn't be embarrassed for them to hear that. But you'd be embarrassed if there was some aspect of their life that you were giving the details on. That's gossip. Now, he says, even this, we're going to deal with it. He even cares about that. Next is the word arrogance. Arrogance. Are we okay? Are we okay? Are we good? Arrogance. This word arrogance has this idea of a swollen head. A swollen head. Your ESV uses the word conceit. Um, the, um, The message uses the word swelled heads, which I thought was very strong. It's this idea that your opinion is always the right opinion. And that you're the most important person in the room. You are full of yourself. And if anybody has an opinion that's different from your opinion, they're automatically wrong and you're automatically right. It's a person who can't do Romans. Um, sorry, Matthew 7, which is look at the log in your eye before you take the speck out of your brothers. That's a person who is arrogant. It means that you've got a swollen head. You are always right. You are rarely wrong. Now, you may be wondering, how do I know I'm a person who's arrogant? I'll give you a foolproof test to know. Today, I can give you... I can help you right now to know if you're an arrogant person or not. Y'all ready? No, y'all don't, y'all don't want to hear it. Y'all don't want to hear it, do y'all? Okay, I, I, I'll give it to you. Here's how you know you're an arrogant person. If you've never said to anybody, I was wrong, I sinned against God, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? Or you've never even said, I'm wrong, with no buts. A lot of times we'll say, I'm wrong, I was wrong, but only because you did this. No, no, no. You're still arrogant. It's, I did wrong. If that's never happened as a parent, if you've never said that to your children, if you've never had to say that to anybody, if you've never said that, guess what? You're arrogant, you have a swollen head. Paul cares enough about them in his pastoral ministry that he says we're, we're going to deal with this. This is not okay. This is not a respectable sin that God wants you just to, w- that God winks at. Last in verse 20, disturbances, disturbances. Your King James says the word tumults, which I think is a really great one. It's the idea of an insurrection, mob violence, a revolution. It, it means that basically the people that you've been backbiting... You go and gather a mob to come and backbite against those people. It's not just you. you got to get other people on your side. you got to get consensus from others. If others agree with you, then obviously you've got to be the one that's right. So a disturbance is a you're creating this mob violence. You try to get people on your side. And if you can get enough people on your side, you can do whatever you want. I even had one person tell me one time, um, I was talking to somebody, and they were debating me about the issue of homosexuality. And the person had told me and said, hey, have you not... Notice that our country has legalized gay marriage, and um, so you know you're obviously wrong. And I was like, well, just because the just because more people say it's okay doesn't actually mean it's okay. God has said something different. And by the way, I'm not trying to be ugly or nasty by saying anything like that, but that's the idea. It's disturbances. You're gathering a mob, an insurrection, a revolution to get people on your side to get what you want. And you're going to come at especially the people that you've already been doing the, the you know, going after them through their back. Paul says, I, I, I am serious about your sanctification, guys. When I come, you're, I wish to not find this, right? And you're going to wish I don't find this. And we got to take care of this. Why is this? Because when God saved you, it was more than just giving you a ticket out of hell into heaven. You get that. But you also get him now. You get the power of the resurrection. You get a transformed life. And I find it interesting that he decides to go after verse 20 before verse 21. When in most of our lives, we care about verse 21 and we'd wink an eye at verse 20. Look at verse 21 and then we'll be done. Hey, great job, guys. Y'all are doing so good. He says this, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. Now this word humiliate, also when it's used, it also means the word humble. And what Paul is saying is, when I come, if you're still in those sins, but even in verse 21, because we've dealt with this, we've talked about it. We've talked about it at length. If there's still some that are dealing with this area of sexual morality, man, it's going to be humiliating. It's going to be humbling. It's one of these things where Paul's saying, you are a direct representation of my discipleship towards you. And when you walk in this, this is a hard thing to take. Just want to know this. Everybody that's ever poured any amount of discipleship in you, your sin affects your relationship with God, your relationship affects others, and it also affects those that disciple you. And if you're discipling people, and you don't care about sin in their life, then you're not being a really good disciple, right? A disciple maker. So he says... I'm hoping that it isn't like this. When he he, he came the second time, guys, that's what this was like. He's saying, I hope it's not going to be like that again. Even notice this. He says before you that I may mourn. What kind of pastoral care does he have? He mourns over their sin. Oh, that God would give Collierville Bible Church in its body where we would mourn over people's sin. When we know there's sin in our body, we would mourn of it. When will there be sin in our children's lives, we would mourn over it. As children, when we see sin in our parents' lives, we would mourn over it. And only that, look what he does. He says, that I may mourn over those who have sinned in the past and not, what does he say? Repented. That word repentance means change of heart that results in change of life. It's a both hand. So he says, I mean, here's the deal. You know, a lot of times we're okay as long as per- a person doesn't do the action anymore. I mean, have we ever been like that with our kids where we've, there's been things that we've asked them to do and we've kind of gotten to the point where we're like, if you're, even if your heart's not in it, don't care, just do it. Paul's saying, I want big repentance. I want God's repentance. I want heart and hand. I want the whole thing. I want the whole package together. I want to see that you've repented. And by the way, if you really haven't had the change of heart, then your repentance is a worldly kind of penance, but not a godly repentance. So he says, I want to see repentance. I want to see a change. And by the way, when we repent, it's not just in one area. Repentance is an all-of-life kind of thing. What pastoral care he has here. What... What seriousness about it, the sanctification that he would say, I'm worn over your sin, and so much so, I'm not okay that you just have some kind of shallow, worldly penance. I want repentance. Now we end with this. He then does name the sexual sins. He uses the word impurity. Y'all see that first word, impurity? That word impurity means a sexual filthiness from the motives, from the inside. It's this idea of it's before you get to the action. It's just the all of thought kind of life. Now the message actually uses a phrase that I think actually is really kind of interesting. It says the pigsty of evil. It means you kind of in your soul love to sit in the sin of sexual morality, and it's it's in your soul. It, it becomes it's all so important. And I'll tell you where I see this. Um, you'll see men who now man there's so many like great online um, accountability things that you can do now. But here's what I'll see. I'll see men who will go to other men and go, hey man, can you be on this um, this app with me and it's going to look at my phone and everything like that. And, and that's really great, right? Um, and I just need some accountability. And this is really great. But then what that guy does is, he's smart enough that he knows all the technical end-arounds, where he's satisfied his conscience enough before God that he thinks he's put some accountability, but he knows that he knows some kind of backdoor way that he can still have access to what he wants, but the whole time presenting himself righteous to the guy because there's nothing that ever gets caught. Are y'all tracking with what I'm saying here? That's what this word is denoting. Not technology. They didn't have that kind, right? But this idea of it's so inside of you that you're being deceptive about it. You're not being clean about it, and it's the all-consuming thing of your. It's the all-consuming thing on the inside. Before some sin happens on the outside, it happens on the inside. So he says, "There's this impurity that's happening." And by the way, how do you know there's impurity? Sometimes I'll, I'll tell you how you know is that if you ever have someone else who says that sexual morality is okay and says, "Come and join me." And you're just like, well, that's all I needed. <laughs> there was already impurity in your heart already going on. Then he uses the word sexual morality. This is the Greek word pornia that we get the word porn from. And let me just give you the easiest understanding of this word, sexual morality. Sexual morality is anything, anything sexual, outside of the marriage bed between a biological man and a biological woman. That's sexual morality. Uh, it's a juncture word in the sense of it just, everything else goes into that, right? If you, so people say like, what kind of, what, what is God okay with? I'll say this. A husband and wife, I'd say biological now, a biological man, a biological woman in a committed of marriage, in the marriage bed, that is the only place, anything sexual of any nature, I don't care what creative idea and thing that man has, that's it. That's it. Anything outside that is sexual morality, is pornea. Of course, as you know, they were practicing all sorts of stuff, right? Um, When you look back at 1 Corinthians, a a guy was sleeping with his stepmother. And the Corinthians were basically praising it, thinking, Oh, what great liberty we must have that we can do this. Our sins are forgiven. Therefore, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Now, this last one is the word sensuality. Um, Sensuality. Now, uh, some of your other versions, if you have a King James that uses the word lasciviousness. That's not a word we hear all the time. If you have an NIV, it says the word debauchery. If you have a Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's a Southern Baptist translation from a couple years back. Promiscuity. But here's what this word sensuality, these are great words. I think that once again, uh, the King James actually gives you kind of a great understanding using this obscure word lasciviousness. It has the idea of self-abandonment. Where your immorality is taken to extremes, this self abandonment. Where your immorality is taken to extremes, it means you're more than just impure with your thoughts on the inside. It's more than your run of the mill sexual morality. It's I'm throwing off the moral restraints and I'm abandoning even the um, I'm I'm self abandoning things and just going as far as I want to go. You'll see that today with things like polyamory. What is that? That would be a form of sensuality. You're throwing. Off complete restraint, right? It's more than just a man and woman saying, it's a whole lot more than that. You'll see this even in the Christian community. You may be unaware of this, but you know that among serious Bible students in our area, there's a whole big group that promote polygamy, right? I mean, it's big. And I'm talking, I've had people sit in the counseling room with me and try to promote that this is what God has said. And of course, I think we've got TV shows all over the place about them now polygamy even within the christian world what is that that's this sensuality i just want to tell you if you're a person who studies studies the word and you can find you can find any kind of ancient church father or preacher from the past who in a commentary doesn't say anything bad about polygamy and then you bring it to me and tell me there must not be bad because this this, 16, this 1,600 writer said this, and this 1,700 rider said this, and a lot of people love this pastor. Here's my response. I don't care. God's Word has spoken, all right? Polygamy was never okay. It was always the creational intent was a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. Everything outside of that is not right. I don't care what anybody else has said. God has said. But that's this idea of sensuality here. It's this abandonment. We sometimes would use the word hedonism. Where hedonism is this idea, you just throw off all restraints just to get pleasure for yourself. So Paul comes in and he says this. I'm afraid that there's these things, they've been practiced. Paul says in verse 13, one. We're not. we we're going to start with this next week, but notice what he says as we end. This is the third time I'm coming to you by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every matter may be confirmed. Verse 2. I previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who've sinned in the past and to all the rest as well that if I come again, I will not what. Said so we're going to deal with this. Why is that? Because he's serious about their sanctification. Oh, that the Lord would help us to be a church body that is serious about each other's sanctification. That we want to deal with sin. In our own heart and life, we want to deal with it in our own homes. We want to deal with it in our own workplaces. We want to deal with it in our own church. That we're serious about this issue of sin. And why should we be serious about this issue of sin? Because when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he died for more than just the sins to get you into heaven. Although that's true. But now your sins are forgiven. Why would we walk in rebellion when God has forgiven us and given us the power to say yes to Him and no to sin. That's the fullness of it. Would you stand to your feet and let's have a time of singing to the Lord and contemplating and thinking about what God has shown us in His Word today. And fathers, could we, fathers and husbands, could we pray and ask God that we would shepherd our families in such a way that we would be serious about not not only verse 21, but, but verse 20. Wives, mothers, would we be serious about this text that we wouldn't be okay with verse 20 working in the home of our children? As we shepherd our children, as we guide them, that we wouldn't be okay with the rivalries and dissensions that happen in verse 20 among our kids? Would we even ask the Lord that we wouldn't be a church that would be okay with verse 20? Could we go to the Lord and ask him? Father, we are so thankful for your word. We want to do good ministry to each other. Being a part of Collierville Bible Church or any church, it's not just about a a name on a roll, but it's a people. It's a people who are called to help each other on this road of sanctification. God, would you give us a love and um, a proper motive that we would speak to each other when we see this? God, would you help us? Would you let us not be afraid? Would you let us not fear man, but fear God? God, would you help us? If someone's here and has never trusted Christ, they'll never be able to say no to verse 20 or 21 till they first bow the knee to you. We'll bring someone to salvation today. May they trust you as Lord and Savior. Would you do a work now as we sing? Would you do a work as we take a meal together? As we take the Lord's Supper? Would you do a work with this text today? In Jesus' name, if you're in agreement, God's people said, amen.